Good morning again. Uh, so this isn't a mission sermon, unless, of course, it's about Christmas. And since it's about Christmas, I guess it makes it a mission sermon, even if it's indirect. I was just taking note, and I think it was over five times in our Christmas songs, the world was mentioned. When we're singing about Christmas, we're singing about missions. We're singing about the missions of a missionary God who sent his missionary son into the world to seek and save that which is lost, who ascended into heaven, who sent his missionary spirit to send his people out as missionaries so that they could hear this message. And so let's don't forget, and that's what we're hopefully going to do is we're going to put Christmas in a bigger context. Let's don't forget Christmas is God's rescue mission. It's God breaking into the world of darkness with light. It's God coming to a world of shadows and flipping the lights back on. And so I hope to give you a bigger perspective of Christmas today, a missions perspective of Christmas today, an eternal perspective of Christmas today. Um, So let's pray and let's ask God to not just let us hear truths that we've heard before about a season we've heard before, but for God to produce in us some some wonder, because I think we lose that sometimes, some awe, some worship over these familiar, rich, deep, rescuing truths. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you that you would see fit to send your Son to seek and to save that which is lost, to seek and to save us, your people. And, God, we thank you that you have been a sending God for all this time, that your gospel has filled up so many parts of the earth, But I pray that even as we think about this little place in Jerusalem, half a world away, where a baby is born, God, that we would see something bigger, something more wonderful. And Lord, as we look at the face of the glory of God in a child in a stall, in a feeding trough, God, would you return us to that simple wonder, that simple worship that led the shepherds to come and see, to worship and to go and to tell. And would you make us a people that have seen and that go and tell. We pray that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as we lead up to Christmas and take the steps towards Christmas, as we do that in Scripture, there's a lot of action that takes place. A lot of preparation gets made. And so you've got an angel comes and he talks to John the Baptist's dad who then can't talk after that and announces John the Baptist coming. And then we got a same angel showing up to Mary and telling Mary that she is going to have the Messiah and that it's going to be the child of the Holy Spirit. He's going to be fully God and he's also going to be the child of Mary. He's going to be fully man. And we have that taking place. Then we have uh, a Roman emperor who has no concern for God whatsoever, does not follow God, thinks he is God. And under the sovereign hand of God decides to declare a census where he moves the people all over his empire and puts his whole empire on the move because God wanted one baby born in one place called Bethlehem. And we've got a trip to Bethlehem for Mary and Joseph because that's the registered place of his birth. It just so happens to be the place of prophecy, just so happens to be that he's of the line of David and this child, the Messiah of David, would be born there. And so there they are. And we have the census. We have a star that appears and gets these wise men traveling that's up to one to two year period of time to come find this child. A lot of preparations. But you know, the preparations for Christmas began 
earlier than that, earlier than 12 months before Christmas. The preparations for Christmas stretch all the way back into eternity. And so that's the beginning I want us to start with as we kick off the Christmas season this year. If you look at the Gospels, they all put Jesus in a context. And so with Matthew, we trace him back to Abraham from the very beginning. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. And as we go to Mark, we trace him back to John the Baptist. It's all about the mission of Christ. It's all about the service of Christ to the world. And then as we go to Luke, he traces it back to John the Baptist about 12 months before, um, before the birth of Jesus. But John puts a different context. And it makes sense for John because John's got a, John is the one that is filling up our view of Jesus with this, this godness, this, this glory that this child has. And so he goes back to eternity and says, why don't we start at the real beginning? Let's start in eternity. And so with that, turn with me to John chapter 1. We're going to read portions of what's called the prologue. Um, that's just basically the book's introduction. And so we get the big themes of the book of John. Uh, we get light and darkness. We get the big themes about who Jesus is and what picture of Jesus are we going to get. We get the pictures of what is Jesus going to be about and what is he going to do. And so he kind of introduces us to these big themes that go through the book. And so you can tell from the very beginning, John is interested in saying, here is a stunning, glorious, big, amazing, majestic, sovereign view of Jesus that I want to lay before you over the next 21 chapters. And so let's read portions of the prologue as we, we get to that. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we are going to skip down to 14, not because all that is not super important, but because we're going to focus in on this. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes before, after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And so today we're going to look at Jesus disclosed. I think that's what the prologue is about. Let's disclose the fullness of who Jesus is. And so who is this baby in a manger? The first point we see is he is eternally God in ongoing intimate relationship with God. He is fully God, an ongoing, intimate relationship with God. All right, now, like, the spotlight's on, and so if I get this wrong, it's bad. Amy and I entered into covenant relationship of marriage on August the 15th, 1998. All right, and so I haven't, haven't, nothing's been thrown at me yet. I think I got that right. August the 15th, 1998. So for 18 years, we have been in covenant relationship. There was a start, and we have been in this relationship, and it's really awesome. It's hard, but it's really awesome. Wouldn't trade it for the world. Hope you wouldn't either. And every year that same date rolls around, and guess what? I'm supposed to remember it. And if you're married, not mine, but yours, you're supposed to remember it, right? There's a start date to this relationship. That was not the case with God when it comes to God. 
There is never a time where God has not been. And there is never a time, get this, where God has not been in relationship with God. It stretches to eternity past. There's never been a moment where God was not. And there's never been a moment where God was not in relationship with himself. We know this of we know this as the Trinity. And so that's what we're going to see in these first few verses. Is we're going to see the relationship of God with God. And so go with me here as we look at John 1. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now, if you've read the book of Genesis, that's going to sound really familiar to you. So the whole Bible from the very beginning starts out this way. In the beginning, God. And so John when he is dealing with the start of the new creation, echoes back to the words of the old creation. In the beginning, God. And then so John decides, I'm going to take this phrase and I'm going to start the new creation, or I'm going to start the clock of the new creation with the same words. In the beginning, and if you're reading it super, super, super slow, you might say, in the beginning, and just naturally go, God. Except for that's not the word John uses, is it? In the beginning was the word. And so he's replacing intentionally God with the word because he wants to identify this word who we know of as Jesus, this Jesus, this word. He wants to identify him to us as God. It's not a mistake. It's very intentional parallels. It's a very intentional word choice. In the beginning, God, in the beginning, this word who is God. And so we're going to see in this, in this one verse, there's three facets of the relationship of God with God in this, in this passage. Hopefully it'll become clearer and that that's not too muddy for you. Uh, but we get these, th- these three aspects and these very simple, like two-word statements in the Greek. There's not much to this. And yet there's profoundly much to this. So in the beginning, God, and he uses the word word. I guess we should define that before we go too far. So word in the Greek culture was a huge concept. It was not simply like a spoken word, this word for it. It actually was used of the logic behind the created order. The principles that govern creation would be the word, the logic of creation, or the logic of the world, the cosmos. I shouldn't use creation. And so in Greek thought, this word could be used for the word, but it could also be used to be the principles behind the world, the order, the cosmos, they would call it. And so, like, really big concept that, God, that John personalizes into the person of Jesus. But I think that's only half the origin. The other half of the origin, I think, is, is a Hebrew tracing of this word. How did God create the world? By the word of the Lord. How did God establish his covenant with Abraham? By the word of the Lord. How did God establish his covenant through Moses? By the word of the Lord. And so throughout the Old Testament, we are introduced to the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord has creative power. And the word of the Lord has initiating power. And so we take this together and we've got the governing principle of the world and the initiating creative force of the word of God. And we bring it together in this one word to introduce us to a person. The person who is the final word of God, Hebrews 1 talks about. The person who is the total creative, total initiative power of God. This final revelation. This final disclosure. And so in the beginning was God, the Word. And so here we go. Three little statements he makes. In the beginning was the Word. The the Word was there is the Word he uses throughout the verse. And it's... 
I don't want to get too technical. It's in the imperfect tense, meaning it's continuous and ongoing. And so here we go. We drop down into the very first second of creation. Boom, we're there. And do you know what we would find right there? An ongoing, continuous word that never began. A Jesus who never started. And so what this first verse is doing is it's setting Jesus beyond time and beyond space and beyond place into eternity. In the beginning, eternally was the word. All right. We had not tripped you out yet. You still with me? Okay. I know this is big stuff, but for eternity, there was Jesus. Then there became a beginning. And well, he wasn't named Jesus just yet. In the beginning was God, the son. The Word, He had been there forever. And so He is separate from before time and space. Second, He was with God. What does it mean to be with God? The word there, it's kind of tough to translate, but it could most literally be He was towards God. In the beginning, the word was towards, I'm sorry, the word was towards God. That means He was in face to face relationship with God. He was in the presence of God. This word that was eternal is the word that was face to face with God for all eternity, for all of that time frame. He is the one who was in the presence of God, who was present with God. The word also has kind of an equivalency to it. And so he was equal to God. And so he is face to face in the presence of God, in relationship, equal to God. And yet he's distinct from God. Y'all still with me? Shake your heads. One way or the other. All right, so he's eternal. He's outside of time and space. He's different from God because he's looking at God in the face. And yet there's an equivalency with God. There's an equality with God between them. He was with, he was towards, he was in intimate, face-to-face relationship with God for all eternity. I said this in class this morning, and I'll say it again. God was not sitting in eternity lonely, and so he just decided, I need a world, I need some people to make me happy. I need some people to fulfill me. I need some people because I'm a little bit sad and lonely up here. God has been in eternal fellowship with the Trinity, never lacking anything. Perfectly happy God in relationship with perfectly happy God for all of eternity. In the beginning was the Word. He's separate from time and place. He's distinct. But then look at this. As we complete our picture of what we know of as the Trinity, or, or two parts of it, the Word was God. Ongoing, continuous, it didn't have a starting point. This word, Jesus, was God. It's a simple expression of the godness of Jesus. And this is actually one of the key verses that um, certain cults, especially the Jehovah's Witnesses, will try to attack. Because it is so clear. And it is so direct. And it is so simple. In the beginning was the Word. He's been there for all eternity. He's been face-to-face with God, with equality and relationship. And He's God. And so this is part of where we get this, this idea or this, this understanding of what the Trinity is. God is in three distinct persons, each with their individual personhood, with one essence, one Godness. Three and one. And here we have it. He is distinct from God, looking at God in the face for eternity And yet he is God. He's united to him. And then John just gives kind of a summary statement at the end of that. Uh, In verse 3, all things were made through him, without him. Not. I'm sorry, missed it. He was in the beginning with God. It's too short, I couldn't see it. He was in the beginning with God. There for eternity, separate from God, in relationship with God. 
So when you look at this little manger and you've got all these people around Jesus, and you look at this baby, you are staring into the face of the eternally glorious, blessed God become flesh. Don't lose the wonder of that mystery. Don't lose the wonder of that mystery. And I think there's something about that that is both beautiful and that makes the cross beautiful. And there's something about that that makes the cross more horrible than we ever thought it was. For eternity past, God was in relationship with God face to face. That's a long time, by the way. Eternity future, God will be in relationship with God face to face. Throughout the life of Jesus, God was in relationship with God face to face. Except for a several hour period on the cross where the heavens shut themselves off from Jesus. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not one second of eternity have they ever had one ripple of separation. Until for three hours, he became your sin and my sin. And heavens went dark in the middle of the day. And Jesus is shut off from God. God is shut off from God for the first and only time for all of eternity. It's that wonderful. It's that beautiful. It's that horrible. The second thing we see, he is the creator who invades the darkness of creation with his conquering light. He is the creator, this baby in a manger... That's what I loved about the special. I was sitting there looking, I'm like, they're just singing John. They're just singing the, the message. I can just sit down, right? They're just singing about it. As he lays there, the sun and moon are in place by this baby. This creating, sustaining baby. I, my brain doesn't quite hold that one. He is the creator who invades the darkness of his creation with conquering light. Okay, so... Depending on your view of creation, some amount of thousands of years ago or millions and billions of years ago, however you want to look at it, there's a guy named Adam. And Adam was faced with a choice. Here's a piece of fruit. The serpent thinks it's great for you. His wife thinks it's great for him. Here's a piece of fruit. Eat or don't eat. And I think we all know how the story turns out. He eats. And when he eats, he turns the lights off on the world. A world that was filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A world that was filled with the light of the radiance of the glory of God. A world that was filled of people, or of the two people who would walk with God in the cool of the day in the garden. And the lights get shut off. And the world goes dark. And now what is left of God... And evidence is the imprints of God and the shadow of God seen through the veil of our own sin. And so people are groping about in darkness now. The default condition of the world is darkness. If you go anywhere on earth where the gospel has not been, you will see darkness that horrifies you to the core of your soul. Because they're living in darkness. The world is darkness. There's not ever been a light turned back on there. And so it's darkness. It makes our, it breaks our relationship to God, right? We want to be God. I will be like God. I will make the rules. I will determine. I will be worshipped or I will determine what I worship. I will define what I worship. I'm God. Our relationships with each other break. Have you ever noticed how hard relationships are? 
They're not supposed to be. God has been happy with himself for eternity. We can't be happy with each other for like a week. That's a problem. That's broken. That's darkness. Our marriages are a grinding struggle. Why? Because Adam turned the lights off. Our friendships are a problem. They're struggled. They're broken. They're hard. Why? Because Adam turned the lights off. I look for in you what I should look for in God. Why? Because Adam turned the lights off. Raising kids. It's hard. Why? Because Adam turned the lights off. Work is hard. Why? Working in the garden wasn't hard. God gave them work and worship in the garden. Why is it hard? Because Adam turned the lights off. We live in the, a world that is dark. It is morally dark and it is darkened to the knowledge of God. It's dark. But God wasn't finished when Adam ate the fruit, was he? He was just getting started. And when we get to Christmas, after all the works of God leading up to it, when we get to Christmas, we get to the moment where God turns the light back on in the world. And that's the imagery John uses. That's the imagery he uses to introduce us to Jesus. His light has now come back into the darkness of the world, and it is not going to go well for one or the other. It's going to cause a problem. There is going to be a massive conflict. But in case you haven't read the end of the story, light wins. And if you read it in John right here, light wins. And so we have this dark world being invaded by light at the birth of Jesus. We are being introduced to the one who is light. The one who turns the lights back on. Let's look at it. And so... Uh, all things were made through him. He, he switches quickly from the relationship of God with God to God with creation. Uncreated God, created creation. Eternal God, temporary creation. And so all the things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. And like, Hopefully you didn't miss that. All things. Like, that's everything. That's the spiritual realm. That's the physical realm. That's everything. And in case you missed it, in case you're slow like me, He went ahead and repeated it for you. If you need me to say it another way, I'm going to say it in this really awkward sentence in English. Without him was not anything made that was made. It's this all-inclusive. He has gone from, he is God in relationship with God, who is now in relationship to his creation as the creator. And everything that is made was made through him. And I don't think it does us a lot of good to try to like dissect, okay, what part did the Father play in the Son and the Spirit? Creator God, including Jesus, created everything. There's nothing in the world spiritual and there's nothing in the world physical that was beyond his creation. So there is uncreated God and that's the only category that's always been. Everything else got a beginning. Everything else was created. But then this is what I want you to see. I think this is where John introduces us to one of the great themes of his gospel. is life and it's light. In him was life. The essence of who he was was life. He is the definition of life. He is the source of life. Everything that is alive in the true sense of the word is life. That's why I believe Adam and Eve truly did die in the garden. You know, God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. I believe Adam and Eve died right there. Why? Because their relationship to the God of life was broken. And I would define death as a separation from the God of life, whether that be spiritual or physical. It's it's only parts of the same coin. Because to be alive is to be in relationship to the God of life, and to be dead is to not be in a relationship with the God of life. And so whether you're physically, alive, or, physically or, or spiritually dead, it's the same thing. It's cut off from life. 
And that's found in God. In him was life, the definition of life, the source of life. And that source of life was the light of men. So let's work a little bit on light and life. We've been going through 1 John, so these terms shouldn't be new uh, to some degree. All right, so we've got... I always reverse it in my brain. In him was life. Life goes first. Okay, so in him was life. And I would say that is eternal life. The fullness of life. What he calls abundant life. So life that's really life. Life with meaning, life with purpose, attached to the God who is ultimate and the definer of life. And so in him was life, and in him was eternal life. And the way the Bible views eternal life is not like a period of time we're waiting for, just as a quick recap. It's not like, okay, I go to, once I die, I'm going to walk into eternal life. Eternal life is a quality of life that we live now. And so this is eternal life, that you know God the Father and, the one, and His only Son whom He sent. Knowing God is eternal life. Living in the life of God is eternal life. And so in Him was eternal life, the quality of life that is eternal The quality of life that is pure, the quality of life that is righteous, the quality of life that is humble, the quality of life that is confessing. In him was this life. And this life turned the light on for the world. It was the light of men. And light is the idea of, yes, certainly revelation or or disclosure, but it's also, what we've been focusing on, it's the idea of purity and it's the idea of righteousness. And so in him was the real thing, real life, the way it's meant to be defined with meaning and purpose. And that gave to people light. It gave to them righteousness and purity and abundance and fullness. And so a world that was dark has now got the light turned on to it, turned on in it, excuse me. And so in him was life and that life was the light of men. Now look at this conflict that that creates. The light shines in the darkness. How is the world defined for John? Darkness. What is the... uh, He uses that when Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He comes to him at night. He uses it of Judas when he leaves the presence of Jesus. It was night. The world is dark. It is corrupt. It is death. It is deception. It is corruption. It is decay. It is brokenness. That's the world. And what is Jesus? He is light and he is wholeness and he is righteousness and he is fullness and he is truth and he is beauty. And now we have these two worlds colliding. The light shines, present tense, forever the light shines, present tense. The light has come on and it is not turned off and it will never be turned off. The light is on. And it shines in the darkness and the darkness did not take it well. The darkness was not happy about this scenario. And so the darkness fought him. The darkness attacked him. The darkness rejected him. The darkness persecuted him. The darkness put him on a cross to kill him, which only made him victorious in the end. But it did not conquer him. And so there is this mighty collision between light and darkness, but the end was never in dispute. The darkness could not overcome him. And so forever now, Jesus has turned the light back on in the world. And that's why he says, you are the light of the world. I am the light of the world who turns lights back on in the world to turn lights back on in you. And then the lights turned back on in you are to be spread through every corner of the earth. Christmas is missions. So that the light of the world truly lights up the world again. And then one day, there will be no need of sun or moon, because the Lamb will be His light, will be the light. And all of creation will have the lights on again. 
And all of creation will be in relationship to the God of life. Those who are redeemed and those who are left will be in relationship to the God of life and light forever. And so our mission is to turn the lights on one by one by the gospel until the world has light again. There's a conquering light that invaded the world in Jesus, invaded your life in the gospel, and is now invading the rest of the world so that the lights come back on. Last step in this. He is eternally God in relationship to God. He is the creator with a conquering light. He is God in human flesh, ushering in a new age of grace and truth. He is God in human flesh, ushering in a new age of grace and truth. All right, so we have made it successfully through three kids taking training wheels off the bike. You know what training wheels are, right? You have no clue how to ride a bike, but if you just pedal, these things will keep you from falling down, and you can go really fast and think you're doing a great job at it. All right, and so you got training wheels. You're not going to fall for the most part, not perfectly. Right, and so we have successfully transitioned three kids onto real bikes. The fourth one's coming up this year, I have a feeling. And there's, you know, there's a little bit of an adjustment process with this. The law were the, was the training wheels of humanity. Keeping us from falling, keeping us on course, keeping us safe and protected. It's like training wheels on a bike, keeping us safe and protected until we matured into the age of grace. Does that make the law bad? No, it makes us bad. The law is a perfect expression of the character of God. And not one jot or tittle, not the smallest little marks in Hebrew will ever pass away from that law. So is it bad? No, we are. We can't keep it. Do we discard it? No. Jesus said, if you, talk, if you minimize any of these, you're the least in the kingdom of heaven. It means that the Holy Spirit comes, that grace comes and invades us and gives us a delight in the law of the Lord and writes the law on our hearts to where we are empowered to keep it and we love and cherish it. It doesn't discard it because the law is the revelation of the character of God. God's not going to erase his character because of grace. He's going to empower us to model and make us a model of that character by grace. And that's what we see. The training wheels have come off. And now instead of needing the externals of the law to keep us on track, we have the internal balance of the Holy Spirit riding on our hearts as law. Think how weird it is to see adults with training wheels. That's the same way it is when we see Christians in an age of grace, living, living as if the law will justify them. So look at this. The word, and this is not meant to be dissected, it's meant to be meditated on. So just meditate on this verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Just think about that. The Word, this eternal God, the Word, face to face relationship with God for all eternity, the Word, distinct from God, the Word who was God, became, took on flesh. That's Christmas. It's called the incarnation. It's God becoming man, God entering. His creation, the creator taking on the creation. The word became flesh. And the word there is he tabernacled. He pitched the Old Testament tent of meeting among his people again. 
When they built the tabernacle, glory fell on it, and they could not minister because the glory of God was so heavy there. When they built the first temple, and they finished it, the people couldn't minister because the glory of God fell on it, and they could no longer enter in. It doesn't say that about the second temple. And in fact, that image doesn't show up again until right here. The tent of God has been pitched in the middle of his people again. And the glory of God is residing in the middle of his people again. But this time, instead of repelling people because it is too wonderfully amazing to minister in its presence, it walks around as one of the people and connects himself to one of the people. And we have seen his glory. And it's a unique glory of the unique Son of God. All those who are His are adopted sons of God, but this is the only begotten. This is the unique Son of God, uniquely displaying the glory of God for us. And it has been absent from the world for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years at this point. And the glory of God makes up His dwelling again, and it pitches His tent again in the middle of His people. He became flesh and he dwelt, he tabernacled among us. We saw his glory. We saw his worth. We saw his perfections. We saw his greatness. We saw his worth. And that worth was defined by being full of grace and truth. You see that? He was full of grace and truth, full of the loving kindness of God, the covenant love of God, full of the undeserved un, uh, mercy of God. He was filled with that. And he was filled with truth. Here's, here's the lights back on. Here's who God is. Here's the shadow now made perfectly revealed. And that's who he is. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to squeeze 15 out, not because it's not important. The Holy Spirit inspired it. It's a great verse, but I want you to see the connection. Full of grace and truth, from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. The one who is grace and truth, overflowing dispenses grace into the lives of his people. And the word grace upon grace is the word grace opposite grace. Grace anti-grace. Which means there is the fullness of loving kindness on this way, and if I want to turn away from it, you know what I'm going to run into? The fullness of loving kindness and mercy. Grace. And if I turn another direction, you know what I'm going to run into? The fullness of loving kindness and tender mercies. There is no way for the person who has met Jesus to run anywhere that does not collide with grace. Grace, opposite grace, opposite grace, opposite grace. From the fullness of grace, the one who is in the fullness of grace, we have grace. And then look at this. There's two ages, and it's not to diminish one and exceed the other. It's to just separate. You know, for the law is given through Moses, this good law that represented the good character of God, that people who did not have the heart to obey it, they did not have the heart to follow it, so it condemned them, and that's all it could do. The law came through Moses, the age of the law. The relationship of God, uh, eh. the law came through Moses. Let's just just say that. The period of the law, the living under the law that did not have the power to save. It was lesser, I guess would be a way to say it. Not bad. And then the age of grace came through Jesus Christ. All right, so the law came through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus. There is a new age that has dawned in Jesus, and it's the age of grace. Not grace that erases the law, but grace that empowers the law, right? Titus tells us God is, his salvation has appeared. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, and it teaches us to reject ungodliness and to live in righteousness. So the law came through Moses, and the, the age of the law came through Moses. Grace came through Jesus, and the age of grace, the Current age came through him. And then look at this. No one has ever seen God at any time. 
Do you remember this? Like These are all allusions to Moses. The tabernacle Moses built. The uh, law of Moses. And then this is too. No one can see God. Do you know what Moses asked God? God, let me see your glory. And he says, if you see it, it will kill you. But here, hide yourself in the rock. And when I pass by, you can see the backside of it. And that may not kill you. No one has ever seen God. Not even Moses. Not even Moses whose face glowed with the glory of God. The only one that's ever seen him and lived was the son. The son that was in the bosom at the side of the father. The face-to-face relationship with the father. And now he has shown him to us. He's revealed him to us. He's made him known to us. And so we saw the shadows. We saw the portions. We saw the definitions of God. Now we're seeing God in HD. And that's what we see when Jesus is born. That's what we see in this baby in a manger. We see God who's always been in a relationship with God. We see the invasion of conquering light into a dark world. And we see God in human flesh that ushers in this brand new age where grace will reign and rescue people to himself. That's Christmas. Let's look at a few practical things as we close. First, meditate on the wonder of Christmas. I know it's busy. How is, it that, how is it the times that are supposed to be most centered on Jesus become the busiest and the most distracting from Jesus? It shouldn't be so. But if it is, I would just challenge you and encourage you and challenge me and encourage me to step out of that busyness at key focus times, get away, and think about this Christmas that's eternal. Think about this, the bigness of this Jesus that's being born and the the salvation that he's bringing to all mankind and what he's done. Just soak in that a little bit. Use Christmas to do that. Don't get too distracted by parties and shopping. Set aside some focused time to soak into these truths. Second thing, be intentional with your interactions at Christmas. There's very few times, there's just kind of divinely appointed times where God just seems to draw a little nearer in common grace to the rest of the world that open up conversations about Jesus, that open up conversations about spiritual things and gospel things. And so I would just ask you every single day, God, would you just give me some opportunities to talk about what Christmas is about? Not just with a button. You can have a button, but not just that, with just real heart-to-heart conversations about people. It's a tough time of year for a lot of people. That might be a means of bringing the ministering grace of Jesus into somebody's life. It's open times for people a lot of times. Use those openings. Don't let them pass. Be intentional with your conversations and your interactions. Find really practical ways to share and love with, on people through this season. And then the last one, stay in community. Have some family time with your deeper with one. Come to these things that, that we're doing as a church, not just say, hey, I went to the event and I, you know, I marked my attendance, but as a means of just staying in community, staying in spiritual family, staying in, in ways where people encourage you and sharpen you, staying in conversations about Jesus. Those are some ways to just make Christmas, prepping your heart for Christmas, which we'll be celebrating over the coming month. Who is this Jesus? He is God in relationship with God. He is the conquering light of God. He is the word become flesh, displaying the glory of God and giving us the grace of God. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name we bow. God in human flesh, before him we bow. To declare his praises, who has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his light. 
Oh, Father, it's in his name we bow. I pray that the beauty of Jesus would unblind hearts today. I pray that the beauty of Jesus would reclaim distracted hearts today. I pray the beauty of Jesus would burst our hearts open with wonder and worship. God, that you would do that and so, so much more. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.